Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Welcome to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson and Barton Simmons. It's your call for the best college football coverage. From National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between, CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Barton Simmons. That's Tom Fernelli. I'm Chip Patterson. we got a lot to get to today, including uh, what's going on with Mel Tucker and his Michigan State staff, and what Kentucky might have won this week, this weekend, or this month, uh, in terms of the the battle for recruiting in the state of Ohio, Um, and, of course... Your questions from the mailbag and our second edition of the Cover 3 Book Club. The choir of Oompa Loompas is warming up as we speak. We will get to them later. Uh, but, gentlemen, let's let's dive right in with some of the news of the day here on Monday as uh, NFL.com is reporting that former Wisconsin and Arkansas head coach Brett Bielema is interviewing for the Colorado job. Now, we've got a couple other, you know, Eric Bieniemy, as we mentioned, when uh, – Mel Tucker first left Colorado was going to be someone that was going to be in the mix. And there has been, according to reports, some contact. He is weighing his options. If we've already moved on to Bielema, I guess uh, maybe we could guess, we could surmise that Bienemy took the advice of the Cover 3 podcast, hang around and go get yourself an NFL head coaching job. But uh, but I guess, Tom, as we consider getting Burt back in, uh, back in college football... <laughs> How much are you putting on this? How much are you putting to these reports? Um, and if you were Colorado or a Colorado fan, is this something that you'd be encouraged by? I mean, I'm, I'm taking it seriously because it's also reported, you know, like Bert was interested in the Michigan State job. Right. And now the Colorado job's open. So it's clear that Bert, while he has been at the NFL level, is still very much interested in running a college program again. So I think that if he is interviewing that, and a bunch of people are reporting he is, then yeah, the, the interest is genuine. Whether Colorado is moving on from Biennemi or it's just doing due diligence by interviewing Bielema, I can't say for sure. But if I'm a Colorado fan, I don't know how I would feel. I think that in one way, considering Mel Tucker leaving you in February and you suddenly having an open you know, job needing to find a coach, I think that finding someone that has won as much as Bielema would be on the better end of the spectrum of what you could realistically expect to get. It's just, I don't know. It's, it'll be weird. Cause we've talked about this before, Bert at Arkansas. I think both Barton and I felt like things were heading in the right direction there and then kind of just got derailed. And I think that he would be good at Colorado, but I think part of my concern there is I don't know that what he does is different enough from the rest of the people in the Pac-12 and from other teams in the Pac-12 to where it could be as successful for him there. Because, you know, if you look at USC, they finally opened things up, but they've still got tons of talent. But Oregon is somewhat of a pro style. Washington has been somewhat more of a pro style. Utah is a little, you know, it's got some spread in it, but it's also basically 
it's like a spread pro style kind of offense. So I don't know if Burt took over at Colorado, if they just go to like a three yards and a cloud of dust kind of offense that we saw at Wisconsin, how well that would work. But I wouldn't hate the hire. And I think it would be good for college football to have Burt back around because Burt's always just fun to discuss and have around. And I think that as far as the Pac-12, we've seen losing big name coaches in recent years. I guess Burt would be a big name going back into the Pac-12. Well, I think it's important to sort of like I, there's there's no guarantee what Bielema would look like offensively. I mean, he's a defensive guy by nature, anyways, and he would come in with. Uh, I mean, the Patriots aren't three yards in a cloud of dust. Um, the I, I'm I'm open to uh, allowing for for Bielema to have evolved over the last, since the last time we've seen him, and so. I don't know. I don't know what he would look like. I think from from a just a pure Colorado fan perspective, from a fan perspective, I think I'd always be looking for a little more of door number two, like new blood, new name, rather than a retread type. Yeah. Um, and that's probably not always the best way of looking at it you can get some pretty bad hires just trying to go for the new hotness but uh i would i think i'd just be a little bit if it, again this is purely from a fan perspective i think i'd be a little bit like eh okay if it, if it was bilama um and i think there's still some look there's some probably a little like in within the colorado world like there's a little bit of momentum maybe for Darren Shiverini, the yeah. the interim head coach. I mean, he's a really good recruiter. His, you know, he is. Comes, he he played there. He he's got all the love for the program. He's the homegrown guy. Like that's that to me. If I'm a Colorado fan, is more encouraging because it feels like I'm not just the next thing that Bielema got. Yeah. Like like Bielema filled out an application and now he's going to have to end up at a safety school like Harvard. Yeah, or something. And all, all these Bielema. Um, leaks reports are coming from the nfl in so a- a- aka they're coming from bielema right and so it's pretty clear that like he wants to get his name involved in some of these jobs and uh it's it's so i guess i'm 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 treading lightly on the bielema stuff until it gets real and here's a question for you barton what is the recruiting scene like in colorado like as far as available talent, do they, or do they mm-hmm. generally have at least like three to five, four stars, or is it mostly kind of like a three-star state? Oh, the state of Colorado. Yeah, like high school. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, very, very limited high-end talent in that state. You got to, you have to be able to recruit. I think what they've done well, and and, and Shiverini has been part of the reason for this. He's recruited Texas really well. Um, they've recruited Texas really well. I remember he has a, a some Cliff Kingsbury in him from from some Texas Tech days. Um, under on that staff, uh, obviously you have to be able to get into California and be an impact like a, a factor there. So you are a little bit in a in a in a in close proximity, relatively speaking, to California and Texas. And I think that's really where you have to to dig if you're Colorado. State of Colorado is that you, you can't you can't build your program purely on on the homegrown talent for sure because i would say one thing that maybe a Biel- makes bielema attractive is that at wisconsin he was 
at a school that didn't have exactly the most fertile recruiting territory in his home state. And he was, you know, he like he took advantage of Chicago and he took advantage of other places in the Midwest. So he has some experience there. But of course, the difference is he took over a Wisconsin program that was at full speed already. Right. Like I almost I've gotten to the point where how do you even judge a Wisconsin head coach? I mean, Gary Anderson had success in, in a short period there, too. Bielema, obviously. I mean, it, it, they've just they've been successful with the same style for I don't know how long it's been. Twenty five years now, it seems like. Yeah, it's been since the early nineties. So, I I don't want to say that's a that's an easy job, but that's a gig that that I think a lot of people are capable of winning at because it's just the culture so strong. Barry Alvarez is still sort of over, you know has his hand hovering above the program, keeping things heading in the right direction. Like, I don't even really know how to evaluate Wisconsin coaches, and I don't want to – I'm not. I'm certainly not dinging Bielema for his success at Wisconsin, but I also don't know that it's some sort of, like, like incredible bullet point on his resume that he had success at Wisconsin when – who's the last person that hadn't had success at Wisconsin? Bielema – if, if you like Bielema, you like him because uh, you like the way he thinks about football, the way he talks about football, his training, his pedigree, his lineage. Like, like you're basically taking uh, the idea that he is this charismatic or potentially charismatic figure who does have all of the right training to be able to be a successful head football coach. And I, you know, I don't know. I also don't uh, know what I would consider him in terms of scheme uh moving forward because even at Arkansas I kind of felt like we saw three different Arkansas offenses like there was yeah. uh definitely Alex Collins and Jonathan Williams as a one-two punch two 1,000 yard rushers in the same season like that was a mentality like that 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 was a vibe that they were definitely like putting out there but near the end he started to sling it around a little bit which might have also been his downfall so where he is in terms of uh scheme and approach I, I think that's kind of still decisions that would be up to Bielema should he get a head coaching job. It just feels like he just wants to it feels like he wants to be a head coach. He doesn't care where. You know, he just he just wants to be a boss. Wants to, and, and maybe that's a good thing. But uh I would if I were from the Colorado fans perspective, I'm probably more enthused by uh keeping it homegrown, keeping it in town. And of course I say that after suggesting that Michigan State was about to do the same thing and they went to go hire Mel Tucker. So before we move on to uh, to Mel Tucker and some of the other movement around, um, it is Monday. It is one twenty three p.m. on the East Coast. Do we think Brett Bielema is going to be the next Colorado head coach? No, I don't. No, I don't. We're yeah, not I, that far down the road, are we? I don't think so. No, I would. I would bet against it before I bet on it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think, think that he's. Yeah, I think that he's like your. I think that they've probably got a few options that they'd prefer, and then they're just laying groundwork with Bielema in case those, you know. So you have, it's important to have a steady, you know, a steady back, uh, you know, fallback school. <laughs> yeah, like Harvard, a fallback school. Yeah, yeah. Safety schools. Um, yeah, this this is a pro Georgia and pro Yale podcast here, just just oh, slinging arrows actually, at everybody else. We got our, we did get our. I noticed in our um, comments, we did get our first like. I hate that they're a pro Georgia pod 
but uh, I like it. I like, <laughs> like the pod. I just hate that they're pro Georgia, as if this has been like a, a bias of ours for a long time. Love Get it. used to it. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie Newman, Heisman Trophy Dark Horse. You heard it here first. Uh, all right. So Mel Tucker is assembling his staff at Michigan State. There's the initial headline that Mike Trussell, who was going to be the interim coach, is going to be back on staff. His specific role has not been determined, but uh, you know, a defensive coordinator, I don't know what it's going to be, but he's going to stick around coaching up the defense. Ron Burton, who was the defensive line coach under Mark D'Antonio, he will remain and he will coach the defensive line. So Mel Tucker taking a couple of coaches that were important to the one thing that you felt like you could count on the Spartans to do, even as things tailed off just a little bit in the last couple of years. But as he was trying to assemble his staff, there was a uh, another twist because he was unable to to go and poach Vince, are we doing Morrow or Marrow? Uh, I've always said Marrow. Okay, but it might be Morrow. I think it might be Morrow actually. Seems spelled spelled Morrow seems right. Vince Mar- Vince Morrow or Marrow uh, had an option to go to Michigan State, and after a couple of real tough days of trying to decide what's going on, uh, some old school Ohio. Mafia boss sent a text message that changed his mind. Uh, he actually described it with the with the laughing mafia reference while speaking to reporters prior to the Kentucky basketball game. Basically, there is an Uncle Bob in the Stoops family, but it's not Bob Stoops. It's Mark Stoops's uncle is named Bob. And Bob came in and he whispered the sweet nothings. And, and I think that Vince Morrow is from... Uh, Youngstown, much like the Stoopses, and so there's a big connection there. And Coach Stoops and him were trying to get together. And this is all significant because Vince Morrow, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Barton, but like he is considered one of the big reasons why Kentucky has been able to go into the state of Ohio and be able to get the kind of players and develop the kind of players that have allowed the Wildcats to be uh, having the success that we've seen over the last couple of years to not only have players go to the NFL draft last year, but even after losing that NFL draft talent, be able to maintain uh, a certain level of competitiveness with even within the SEC. So Vince Morrow picks Kentucky over Michigan State and uh, and I believe he was he got the the Steve Wiltfong one of the top grinders of the recruiting cycle for 2020. So I it seems to me like Kentucky nearly lost one of the key pieces of its staff to Mel Tucker in Michigan State, only to uh, give him a new contract and get him back in the fold. All right, so <clears throat> here's like Vince Morrow is he he's absolutely been a big reason for Kentucky's success. <clears throat> um. The, the the bigger and and the primary reason for Kentucky's success under Mark Stoops has been the way they've recruited uh, Kentucky North as opposed to sort of the more traditional view of, of recruiting Kentucky South um, and, and going battle on the rest of those SEC teams. So Mark Stoops came in, he's Youngstown native, as you mentioned. He's going to say we're going to recruit Ohio, we're going to recruit against the Big Ten instead of recruit against the SEC. And in doing so, they've landed guys like Benny Snell and Lynn Bowden, and <clears throat> looky there, they're 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 good. Uh, Vince Morrow, big reason why um, he is one of the best recruiters in the country, certainly one of the best recruiters of the state of Ohio in the country, and he's but he's a tight ends coach, he's not a coordinator, he's a tight ends coach, and I think probably even more specifically, like he's a recruiter, like that's that's his role. 
And I just – like he was one of, if not the highest paid tight end coach in the country prior to this this hiring cycle. And, hey, you know, Mel Tucker jumped in and he's got – he's at Michigan State and he's got a $6 million assistant coaching pool to work with. So what's he going to do? The reason – part of the reason Michigan State has been – not as good lately is because they're getting beat in Ohio by Kentucky. And so he's going to go out and get the guy who he has a relationship with in Vince Morrow, try to land him on his staff. But not only is he trying to land him on his staff, he's trying to pay this dude $900,000 to be, according to reports, to be Titans coach and whatever the title you want to throw at him and go recruit. And good on Vince Morrow because can, obviously Kentucky understands his value too. And Stoops matches it. All right. Hey, we'll give you that too. You can stick around. Michigan State comes over the top with another offer. I don't know what that is. Like, I mean, I, a million maybe? I haven't seen it reported. I guess we'll find out eventually what he's getting made. But I would assume like it's close to a million, if not a million, to, to be a tight ends coach and recruiter. And, and then Kentucky comes back with another offer and – and gets him to stay. So whether they matched it, whether they got close, whether they just convinced him from Uncle Bob talking to him, I don't know. But I just think it's it's talk about sort of the state of college football when you've got this really highly coveted tight ends coach that's that's you know you're you're throwing million dollar nine hundred thousand dollar salaries around. There was a sixty page thread on the Michigan State message board tracking whether or not Vince Morrow Morrow was going to be the, the new the new Titans coach at Michigan State so like it's i just think it's i think the whole thing is just awesome that this dude is getting this much bank because of what he's done on the recruiting trail and that it was that closely followed by both fan bases um, this was big news for Kentucky and uh, and a tough load for Mel Tucker here, here's a way to drive home what you're saying about Vince Merrow and what he really does for Kentucky and his value. Listeners, you can play along at home. Quick, who's Kentucky's tight end? <laughs> <laughs> Lynn Bowden. <laughs> the answer is Justin Rigg. Do you want to know how many catches he had this year? 15. 11. Oh. He led all Kentucky tight ends with 11 receptions. In 2018, it was C.J. Conrad who finished second on the team in receptions behind Lynn Bowden, but he had 30 receptions. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. it's, it's not like, like, like a tight end heavy offense. Yeah, it's not like they're churning out, you know, pro tight ends. That's his, not his job is not to develop tight ends and not knocking that he can't. I'm just saying he's, he's there for a reason. You mentioned too, like, it's not just Ohio. Like, if you look at Kentucky's 2020 class, they got six players from Ohio and four from Michigan. Like, they have 10 players from Ohio and Michigan, and then they have the rest of the class. They've got five from Kentucky and then one from Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina, Tennessee, Virginia. So they've got 10 players from the Big Ten, you know, Ohio and Michigan. They've got more players from those two states than they do the SEC states. <laughs> I love it because yeah. – uh and Vince Morrow said this. He said, uh, "I was he was I was out at a house a high school just last week, and we're seeing more SEC schools trying to get into Big Ten country, mm-hmm. just following Kentucky, which had already gotten hold of it. So he's his commitment is not only great for Kentucky, but he seems really motivated to try and hold on to this uh, this this North Kentucky North strategy that's allowed the Wildcats to be competitive. I mean, just awesome that we are in an era where." 
the a stud recruiter is going to end up making as much as like Dave Aranda. And you know what? You know what all of this tells me too. What? If Michigan or Penn State come open in the near future, they need to go after Mark Stoops before they go after anybody else. Hmm. Yeah. That's not. That may, may not be. May not be a bad idea. May not be a bad idea. Coming up on the other side, your questions, our answers, and edition number two of the Cover Three Book Club. Next. The baseball season is in full swing, which means you need to listen to Fantasy Baseball Today, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. Join Scott White, Chris Towers, and me, Frank Stample, every weekday as we recap every player from every game. We'll talk waiver wire ads, drops, players to trade for, prospects who could make an impact, and everything in between. Make sure to download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and everywhere else podcasts are found. Baseball has begun, which means you need to listen to Fantasy Baseball Today in 5, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. Join Scott White, Chris Towers, and me, Frank Samphill, every Monday through Saturday as we deliver all of your fantasy baseball needs in just five minutes. We'll break down the biggest performers, news, and prospects who could make an impact this season. Make sure to download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and everywhere else podcasts are found. All right, Uh, opening up the mailbag. We're going to get it started with the hottest viral debate uh, of the weekend of last week. Uh, Listen, the listeners want want us to weigh in. I actually didn't. I I didn't stick my pretty little nose into the fight on Twitter to get only to you know get punched in the back of the head on it. So we'll we'll let's get to the question. Jake asks, recline or no recline? I see both sides. Part of me believes that traveling on an airplane is a war zone and it's every man for himself. Whatever makes you feel comfortable is fair game. However, when you are reclining, you are damaging the the chances of the person behind you being comfortable. And then he quotes, freedom is the ability to swing your fist until you hit someone. What are y'all's thoughts on the reclining debate? Go Vols. (laughs) Uh, I tip, uh, you know, like I'm not always super inclined to um, weigh in on the viral Twitter debates. But I did weigh in on this one because, look, I'm six foot three. Like, I'm not a small person. And I've never in my life, like, vocalized some discontent with air travel because the person in front of me is reclining their seat. Like, because I – I don't try to wish away things. Like when I get on an airplane and I sit in my chair, there's a button that says recline. I don't know if it says anything, but it's there to allow you to recline, to get comfortable if needed. And and that button is on the seat in front of me. And when the seat in front of me reclines, I don't feel sorry for myself because that's just the way air travel works. And you're allowed to recline in your seat you're given the option to recline your seat. Why are we all of a sudden assuming that you have to ask permission or that there's some unwritten rule that you don't do it? If you're under, if you're shorter than me, if you're and there's and most people are in this world, and there seems to be a lot of people complaining about reclining seats. I don't even understand how you can talk. Like you got plenty of leg room as is. 
the the whole thing is is uh, it's a very uh, you know I'm not big on the whole snowflake word, but it it conjures up some like real snowflake type mentalities. Like show a little bit of mental toughness and just fight through this on this flight, buddy. <laughs> I am six two. I have never once reclined on a seat. And that's place. you're right. Yeah, and you know why I don't do it? Because I care about other people. I put other people before myself sometimes. I don't just think about myself and my comfort. I think I could recline, but it might be a pain in the ass for a person sitting behind me. And I know it does annoy me when the person in front of me reclines as a 6'2 person. Then again, there's also a reason why I always spend extra for an exit row seat. Because I do have very long legs and I like to have my leg room. But that said, if you do recline, I don't hate you. Know that I'm silently judging you and thinking you're kind of a prick. But... I hate the what the one excuse you used is they if I can why wouldn't I because the options there there are a lot of things you can do that doesn't mean you should do them right and it doesn't mean that I'm not going to pass judgment exactly but yeah. you're free to do what you want I'm free to be mad at you if you do it and the real problem is the airlines who have packed us in there like some damn sardines to try to maximize as much money as they can you know there used to be a time when airline travel first became a thing that like it was you were living in the lap of luxury in the skies man first class was every class like hell first class was like your own private suite for the most part you had space but as air travel has become a more popular mode and a more necessary mode of transportation for a lot of people airlines decided we need to put more seats in the planes even though the planes get larger they just fill them with more seats instead of you know filling them with more room and you know it, it allows us to all argue with each other about whether you should recline or not recline and meanwhile nobody's bitching to the airlines about it which is what we all should be doing like you shouldn't be flying these airlines uh, find an airline that gives you room fly that one i think that uh i get more i get I, I am a silent judger do whatever you want but i will silently judge you and i will judge you based on how long the flight is and whether or not you're reclining i'm, I'm gonna judge you based on your other decisions like if if, if you're showing up looking like you've got the clothing and the accoutrements to turn your airplane seat into your own little nap world with like multiple yes. blankets and pillows and you're reclining, then there's that a lot. That worse than the recliner. Yeah, I'm, I'm, a lot's going into my judgment. I, I will... I will, if I'm going to be out here on the interwebs uh, talking about airplane courtesy, I would say it's it's probably I'm more concerned with what, what you're doing uh, to the people that you're on the same row with, you know, just in terms of, uh, you know, make, making sure that everyone is, is going to be as relaxed as possible. So, yeah, I, I don't think that you need to ask permission before you recline. If you want to recline, that's fine. Uh, but, you know. I also have the right to play solitaire on the touchscreen, so we'll see. Well, the the uh, I, I tweeted, I, I quote tweeted Brian Hartline supporting us recliners, and Brian Hartline, former NFL receiver, one of the best recruiters and and receiver coaches in the country, and and so I tweeted something to the effect of um, big big pickup for a team recline and. <laughs> Someone responded and said, where is team recline rated in the 24-7 sports composite? And I, I said, I don't know, you know, talents, who's to say where the talent lies. But <laughs> one team, between team recline and team wine, team recline is going to be a lot more mentally tough. We're going to be a lot more resilient team 
We're not going to blame every, everyone else for yeah, our problems. Yeah, you guys are so mentally tough that you can't sit upright. Yeah, yeah, that's hours. the other thing. Yeah, yeah I don't know. Oh, if, look at that mental toughness. I, I don't I'm think – comfortable. Me, I need to recline. Yeah. Team recline is not promoting that everyone should recline. Team recline is just saying you're allowed to recline and everyone should stop bitching when it happens. Team recline's not tough enough yeah. to be uncomfortable for a couple hours. I I, th- I think the reclined seat is not a uh, very good posture. Like if we're talking about increasing blood flow and, and just sort of having you in the best position to e- e- do your job, to execute your assignments on the other side of this plane flight, I think recline is real soft. Team so There's a lot of issues. There's a lot of issues with with air travel. You know, if you want you want to bully somebody, how about bullying the guy that brings in the the Indian food or or some some nasty snack from the airport. Uh, food court and eats that with, and, and that's affecting everyone in the flight this nasty food smell there's See, a lot of issues out there that's the thing about a flight is first of all everybody on that flight is judging everybody else oh, silently yeah. 100%. at all times yes like who among us isn't sitting in our seat watching everybody walk by us in the aisle just trying to figure out who that person is yeah. second the reason we do it is because you could tell a lot about a person by the way that they behave on a plane <laughs> especially if they're alone like if families are on the planes and they're kind of oriented with like taking care of their kids or, you know, just talking to each other. But the, the, the solo flyer, you can learn a lot about what that person is like in their real world, in their daily life by how they behave on a plane. And I am much more interested in my dorky little music book than meeting anyone. Hell yeah. I put on my headphones and just leave me that hell alone. Almost swore, but I forgot this is a work podcast. Very- <laughs> So we covered three podcasts divided on the recline debate. Thank you, Jake, for bringing this bad blood into the episode. <laughs> All right. Uh, Book It 2012 asks, I would like you got your guys' opinion on the Tom, Tommy, and or Thomas Reese hire to run the offense in South Bend. I would also like to hear Barton's opinion on the difficulties that schools with high academic standards have with recruiting and how kids feel towards going to a school that requires a heavy academic standard as opposed to other schools that don't. Can you trust your offensive coordinator to make a difficult red zone or goal line or two point conversion call when he can't figure out what he wants people to call him? So this is, Tom, is a thing. Is he Tommy, <laughs> where are we going with this now? We're, we're Tom. I think we're back to Tom, right? It, sh- it should be Tom. Listen, when you're playing, you could be Tommy. If you're not an athlete, you shouldn't be Tommy to anybody but your family past the age of 13. That should be the point where you tell everybody to start calling you Tom. Unless it's like your mom or your grandma or your aunt and uncle. They can call you Tommy forever because that's how they've always known you. But unless you're playing, you're Tom or Thomas if you want to be taken more seriously. <laughs> uh, okay, so so Coach Reese is, I think, I, I don't, I mean, he's, he's well-regarded in that building i think um you know lance taylor their run game coordinator and running backs coach is is probably a nice combo with them as as i don't care i think you got yeah run run game coordinator title i think it's um i i i think it's probably a good hire i think it's probably the good hire because i think brian kelly understands what's expected of this program and no one knows better what Tommy Reese is capable of than Brian Kelly and whoever's in that building every day. And so I don't know that I'm, I don't have anything to, to tell you that the hire isn't good. I don't have anything to tell you the hire is better than it appears. I, I think hiring a young coach 
with a a veteran staff around him, which is what he has, uh, is is a positive as long as that young coach is 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 seeking out new ideas and and not just like calling Brian Kelly's play sheets. And I don't think that's what's going on. But I, but as long as he is a, a coach that's going to continue to push the envelope and and move Notre Dame forward, I think it's probably a good hire. Um, and so so yeah, like that's that strikes me as um, I think Brian Kelly knows the stakes, uh, and so I'll, I'll I'll trust that on the hire. In terms of the second question, I, I think that recruiting to an academic program like Notre Dame can be a an advantage in a way because look i mean clemson has been recruiting as if it is that uh in terms of not compromising on on character on fits uh stanford has had some some stretches of real success and they've got i think really stringent academic requirements uh i think notre dame can can sort of trim the pool based on who it is a fit for and I think in, in doing that, you can really zero in on those guys and, and really tailor your recruiting pitch in an even more targeted kind of way. And so I think that there's, a, there's no reason to think that Notre Dame has some sort of ceiling on its recruiting efforts based on academic restrictions. Um, if, if, I mean, look, if Stanford can do what Stanford has done, and I look, and I'm not saying Stanford's recruited better than they're not. They don't have more talented rosters than Notre Dame, but I think they also have more restrictions than Notre Dame, and they've had some some really impressive stretches. Uh, I think Notre Dame can can kick that up a notch, and but ultimately you still have to have a head coach that's going to get after it and really work on the recruiting trail to to take it up that extra notch. Yeah, I, I, going back to the Tommy Reese hire, it's hard to really know simply because we don't have anything to go off of, but go along with what you're saying, you know, when chip long leaves, this is Notre Dame. They've got plenty of resources. They could go out and throw a bunch of money at a very proven, you know, offensive coordinator or, you know, some big name, somebody to come in. But the fact that it's Notre Dame, they were in the playoff two years ago. They have very high aspirations for what they want to do with the program. And they're very comfortable going with Reese. I think that is probably a good sign Mm -hmm. for what he what he can do as a coordinator. So I, that's the kind of way I feel on it. I don't have any decision or judgment on it simply because there's nothing to judge based on, but that gives me, if I'm a Notre Dame fan, that gives me some reason to be optimistic going forward. I'm prepared, uh, for success or failure. Ian books performance in 2020 to be linked to Tommy Reese and for the stories to be written going in, like I feel like we can guarantee that the Tommy Reese story and, and Ian book taking the leap, like all the, all these great plans we have for him. But I think that that also could cut the other way where if Ian book doesn't live up to whatever heightened expectations are placed before him going into the season, then it might be an unfair um, reflection on Tommy Reese. And you know what? Maybe Ian book, maybe he on his own, develops into a much better quarterback and then Tommy Reese gets some credit for it but when you've got the former Brian Kelly Notre Dame quarterback and the veteran multiple year starter quarterback 
I, I just I can imagine that the narrative around Notre Dame's offense is going to link those two together in a way that might not be totally fair to either one of them, good or bad. Yeah, I think that's a safe assumption. I mean, because what you, you said literally was all we have going on is the fact that they ran the ball up and down on Iowa State in the bowl game, pretty mm-hmm. much. Yeah. Yeah. TB, TBD for, uh, for, for the big ND. All right. This is a very specific very very specific question and i kind of like it because it really reflects on the uh on on sort of where the collective headspace is for the cover three podcast listener okay nate asks i know that the promotion and the analysis that followed happened weeks ago but do you think any part of Corey dennis getting the quarterback coach job at Ohio State had to do with preserving Coach Ryan Day's staff, particularly his holdovers from Urban. If Corey Dennis leaves for Colorado, Urban's family is all of a sudden spread out instead of being in Columbus. And if Urban's family weren't all in Columbus, I think Urban would be more likely to entertain coaching propositions, which would ultimately lead Pantone, Mark Pantone, and Mickey Marotti being pulled away from OSU. Keep up the good work. You're getting me through the off season. I mean, <laughs> that is. I love that question. I know. <laughs> I love that question. God, that's a good question. I mean, it's a it's a ridiculous question. It's 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 fantastical. Uh, I don't believe that that is, in fact, what's going on. I think I think Corey Dennis is pretty highly regarded young coach um but i love where that guy's head went <laughs> if if a few more of the or urban leftovers leave the program then urban will finally and look we might have caused some of this because didn't we talk about on this podcast during another mailbag that you know urban coming back could potentially have ramifications that impact Ryan Day negatively. Where, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, that's we we might have caught, we might have planted the seed, or at least infected patient zero with this conspiracy yeah. theory. But I love it. I mean, I think it's that that it, look. If Urban Meyer were to to coach again, take a job, the idea that Mark Pantone and Mickey Mirati would be potentially leave to go work with Urban again would be terrifying for an Ohio State fan um the idea that <laughs> that's why Corey Dennis got the quarterback is gonna keep Urban's son-in-law around just to keep the family tight and close and put him on the staff like that is just that's just a great college football brain right there yeah I'm so I'm so appreciative of it thank you Nate uh okay this next question from Bro Flacco. Uh, Bro Flacco says, if schools were restricted to in-state recruiting moving forward, who would the top playoff contenders be in the country? Let's assume coaching staffs remain the same. Who are some of the biggest risers and fallers, I guess, from the uh, playoff contention circle? So I think... LSU would be my number one seed mm. because LSU is first of all there's there's gobs of talent down there and no there's, competition for it and they're the only one <laughs> you know where else are you gonna go you're gonna get go to Tulane like LSU can 
there's there's a lot of talent, and LSU would be able to get so twenty the, the one through twenty five the the best twenty five players in the state. And I think within that 25 in the state of Louisiana, you, you get defensive linemen, you get offensive linemen, you get skill players, quarterback, whatever. I guess everyone's got a little bit of quarterback limitations and is sort of a, a, a victim of, the, of each cycle. But like say, like compare it to say Georgia, um, I don't know, I guess Georgia Tech is really the only other competitor um, of note. So yeah, I mean, you you. I don't know. Now I'm talking about. I think Georgia probably my one because you can have a lot of quarterbacks in Georgia too. Um, so Georgia's probably my one. LSU's probably my two. But like it's somewhere like Texas. I think there's a fear because there's so much competition that you like you do what Mac Brown did, where you evaluate so early to to win the competition that the best players could end up slip into TCU or Texas Tech or. You know, I, I just think there's a lot of danger of taking the wrong ones in a state like that. I think that some of the biggest fallers from at least where we are right now are, would be Alabama and Clemson. Because if Alabama and Clemson were limited to only getting players for the tide from the state of Alabama while also competing with Auburn, and then for Clemson only from the state of South Carolina while competing with South Carolina, it's two of the... Like two two of the prominent programs of the college football era, I think that in this in this world that Bro Flacco uh, is creating, I think that they're some of the biggest fallers. And I initially wrote this down, but I'm not as confident in it. But I'll introduce it for conversation. Would some of the biggest risers, at least in terms of where we are right now, and where uh, where we would be with these new rules put in place, would it be Florida and Florida State or? Do we have that same Texas theory that you had where maybe they wouldn't benefit from it as much because we've got so many programs already in the state of Florida? I think there'd be a benefit for sure because now you're just dealing with other Florida schools, not dealing with every single school. Yeah. So I guess USC could would be a riser too then? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think some other followers would be Oregon. We would see drop like a stone. Wisconsin would fall from the rankings altogether. Notre Dame would take a huge hit because there's there's some talent in Indiana, but not like the kind that Notre Dame needs to be Notre Dame. I think Michigan would take a hit because there's talent in Michigan, but not at the level that's necessary. I think Ohio State would probably still be okay. I don't think I would I, I would be picking it against LSU or Georgia very often, but I think it would still be pretty good. I just, yeah, there's... A lot of programs would take a hit. I mean, really, you'd look at a situation like you mentioned with LSU, which is a fertile ground, but there's only one major program in it. And then the Florida, Texas, and California schools would be good. So, but basically this question is, like to even go too far down the road in this question is is a little bit absurd because recruiting is basically, I don't know, I think it's like 80% of your success. I mean, you you can you can argue to, about maximizing development all you want, and but it's still like what you do on the recruiting trail, and and that's well beyond what you do locally, is is what defines you, I think, as as in in in, in large part. So, um, yeah, Oregon would Oregon would plummet, but yeah, Oregon Oregon never is going to have to just recruit the state of Oregon. Barton hates the premise because it ignores the <laughs> it it ignores the growing trends of the the teams that and I, I look 
80% feel strong for if success is judged by like making bowl games and having a winning season, but I'll rock with you if we talk about success, meaning contending for conference and national championships. They don't also, it, this, oh, go oh, ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say this premise would destroy college football. Yeah. Right. No, you can't go to that school. It's in the other district. It's like mm-hmm. high school recruiting wars played out at the college level. Uh, all right. Let's see. D2812 says, I want you guys to go through the blue bloods of college football and tell us why they are the blue bloods. Also, throw in who you guys think shouldn't be a blue blood anymore or who is on a major decline. I I love this question because blue bloods is such a subjective term Mm -hmm. and and everyone throws it around as if it is uh you know just a a black and white deal oh he's blue blood it's not a blue blood and so i i'd love to hear where y'all think the blue blood line is drawn do you want to uh how about this i will take the final uh rankings from this season and we will go down and we will see blue blood or no that work Sure, yeah, but there's going to be there might be a blue blood outside the the top twenty five. There mm-hmm. might be, yeah, I think there is. Well, or yeah. maybe they're number twenty five, depending on the, where you get it at. <laughs> uh, LSU. Yep. I say no. Blue blood. Whoa! Look at you coming out the gate. Yeah. You don't think LSU's a blue blood? Mm-mm. Okay. Why not? I, What's yeah. your definition of blue blood? My definition of blue blood is that we've got consistent. If it's not like consistent winning over long periods of time, we've got multiple peaks. And in my version of uh, the Blue Blood definition, LSU is probably more new money or new school. Wow. Jeez. Man, you're a strict Blue Blood grader. Yeah, the chips, he's, he's, he's that old money. You know, yeah. you know how they are in <laughs> Carolina. <laughs> Mitzi, bring me my mint julep. Uh, I consider my blue bloods are pretty much like programs that have a strong history, but also are capable of winning a national title. And you say that they're new money. Yeah. I mean, they've won four national titles and three of them have come this century since 2003, but they did win one in 1958 and they had like those unclaimed national titles in the early 1900s before everything was really organized. But I just look at LSU and say, that's a team that in any given year can compete for a national title. And that to me makes you a blue blood. Okay. Right. That's sort of the, I, I kind of define blue blood as if you get the right coach in place, you can play for a national championship. And the right coach doesn't have to be the best coach in the game. Like it doesn't have to be Nick Saban. It's a it's a it's you get the right coach, you can play for national titles. And I think and I just sort of this is in real time, I just kind of thought about this as an addendum, but a coach would not leave that school for another program. Like it's you, you you can't be a stepping stone job and be a blue blood. So I think LSU, you're if you if you have a good, competent head coach, you can compete for national titles there. And no one's no one's leaving LSU to you know, no no one's like playing themselves out of the LSU job. And so I mean they just wanted that like how how deep is your? Are you going to penalize teams for history? You know what I mean? Like, like okay, here's like this goes straight down the list. Like, 
Is do you consider Clemson a blue blood? No. See, I do. I do. Now they're a new yeah. blue blood. Yeah, they are new. They are new. Their blood is newly blue. But they did have a national title in the '80s, so it's not like you know, this is completely out of the blue. LSU I think, I th- did not win even a conference championship in the '90s. They won the SEC in 1970, then didn't win it again till '86. Then they won it in '88, and then they didn't win it again till Saban in 2001. I think so you're are, treating blue blood as much more of a historical yes, title. Yes. I so so yes. is is um is Texas a blue blood? Yes. Is Texas A&M a blue blood? No. Is Auburn a blue blood? No. I would go yes, no, no. So Ohio State's a blue blood? Yes. Michigan's right, a blue blood. Michigan's absolutely a blue blood. Is is uh, I mean Oklahoma surely? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Notre Dame, of course. Yes. Yep. What about Florida State? I say no. I say yes. What about Florida? Yes. <sighs> yeah. If yeah, well, if Florida is, then Florida State has to be. I would look at it that way. Too. I I would probably cut it as leaving both Florida and Florida State out. They are college football powers, and they are some of the most iconic programs in the sport today. But if when we stack them up against what I'm looking for in a blue blood, which again, like to me, the the the, the blue blood really does require some some history for the fact that like for 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 grandfathers and grandmothers to have also had that, that football as part of their experience and, and to have it passed down have multiple generations be able to say that they saw uh, the program winning. Like, I'm not going to go all the way and call Army and Navy blue bloods, but yeah, yeah, I am going to go all the way. Army and Navy, blue bloods, okay. the OGs. Right, well, the Yale, Yale, Yale's a blue blood. Yale's a blue yeah. blood. Yale's a blue blood. Because Yale is 17th all-time in wins. And um, they haven't played since 1981 on this level. <laughs> I don't... Is Georgia is Georgia a blue blood? I would say they are, but I mean... I would I would say they're capable of it. I would say they're not there yet. I would say they're not there yet either. I think Georgia is a... I think, I think there might be a better argument for Penn State as a blue blood than Georgia. And... Yeah. Oh, yeah. But I, I think that, you know, maybe this is me being such a big Georgia homer that I'm being tougher on them. <laughs> right. Than I would be other programs. But I just look at them and I say, yeah, they they certainly have the potential. But, you know, they don't really have enough rings and conference titles and all that kind of stuff to really be considered blue blood to me. But again, there's there's definitely the potential there. All right. Is Miami a blue blood? No, no. They've got a great period of history they've got like two great spots where they were great (laughs) good use of words tom (laughs) two great spots where they were great but i think they've got two good periods of excellence and then a whole lot of absolutely nothing like what we're experiencing with miami now is far more in line with miami's history than all those national titles were so like if like if you're talking about what topic could this work for? Like, um, I don't know who's rising. Maybe let's call it. Oh, here's a good one. I, I want to ask you about this in a minute. But 
if you're talking about like Oregon, um, elevating its program from a recruiting standpoint and from on the field standpoint, and 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 you just make the comments. Maybe you've never, maybe you would never dream of making this comment, Chip. But if you made the comment, some of the effect of, look, I mean, Oregon's getting really close year in year out to being one of these blue blood programs that can compete for a national title, whatever, some form of that. You're are. Are you? Would you ever say that? And if you are, are you are you not talking about the, or is that just like poorly poorly used, of uh, poor poor usage of the term blue bloods in your opinion? Or, or 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 if you said that, would you be talking about Georgia and? Uh, I, I mean, dude, I, I I use blue bro, blue blood like privilege. You know, like I think of a blue blood program as all these resources and all this uh, history and all of the, again, like generations of fa- donor families. And, you know, you I think that you are a couple steps ahead as a blue blood. And I think that when you are a blue blood and you're falling short of expectations, that's where a lot of the hand wringing and frustration comes in, especially on the fans perspective. Like I... I think that it is when I say blue blood, it means much less about your national championship odds or contention in 2020 than it does about just sort of the the history of your program within the sport of college football. Right. Okay. So that's so this brings up an interesting one then because <clears throat> I would argue in my definition of blue blood, which is really just sort of a more modern like the upper crust, like. They live in the nicest neighborhood in town. Doesn't matter when they got the money. They got the money right now. Um, but I would argue that Nebraska is is on the outside looking in right now as a blue blood because I don't necessarily have confidence that – look, I, I thought Scott Frost was the coach, and maybe he still is. But I don't necessarily have confidence now after watching Scott Frost still struggle there for a couple years that Nebraska is just, hey, if they just get a coach that's good, they can compete for national titles. Um, but based on your definition, they probably still count as a blue blood, right? They're close. I mean, I would, I have the same sort of like, um, unsure. I mean, and this, like you said, this is fun because it's subjective and we're just sort of creating our own definitions and drawing imaginary lines in the sand. Nebraska feels closer to Florida state or Penn state than it does to Alabama or Ohio state or Oklahoma or Texas. Yeah, I think I think Nebraska is no longer a blue blood and it's rolling down the hill further. I my definition is kind of a mix. I do take into account history, but I give more weight to current times because like if I'm poor now, but my great 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 grandfather was a millionaire, that really doesn't do me a whole lot of good. I could say, well, my I got you know, my family is a very important family around here. We've got lots of history, but I've only got 20 bucks so <laughs> you know what i mean yeah so I, I i i put more weight into what's going on now like in a way like i mentioned miami's had two great eras and i don't consider it a blue blood because right now it is definitely not but at the same time i consider clemson a blue blood and this could be just kind of an anomaly in clemson's overall history but i think that at the moment my blue blood definition is you know it's like blood it flows it's it's malleable it can if if you open some if you open up a vein it'll spread out so I look at that as that's kind of how I view it. I'm more, what's the word I'm looking at or for? 
whatever. Like, I can't think of the word. But some somebody somebody get word to Dabo that Chip does not think Clemson is the blue blood. Hey, so that, that falls in hear, line. So we, it's it's we little... Dabo bitch and moan about it. For yeah, just yeah, yeah, yeah. another one. Just another one in the media. Hey, don't think Clemson can do it. Is little old Clemson? How can you be a blue blood when you're little old Clemson? Can't be both. You know, <laughs> I'm just moving with the definition that you're giving us, Dabo. Like I I the the was a blue blood, but that blue blood status is fading is a very interesting position. Like the, and, and what was the, I guess for Auburn, I think it's really tough for Alabama and Auburn to both be considered blue bloods. And I think that Alabama's the blue blood. Yes. And Auburn is not. You can't be number two in your own state and be a blue blood. No, you can. It's just, it's really hard. It's really hard. Unless you've got a ton of great history. In college basketball, I consider the Blue Bloods uh, Duke, North Carolina, Kentucky, Indiana, UCLA, and Indiana, UCLA are very, very, very much quickly losing. Rolling down that hill. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, they're in that position where it's like, yeah, they are a Blue Blood, but I don't know how much longer they can they can keep that status up. So you're would not. You consider Gonz- would you consider Gonzaga a Blue Blood in college basketball? No, not no. at all. Gonzaga hasn't done it. I mean, oh, we're going to veer off into this, but <laughs> Gonzaga is great at beating the crap out of Big West teams all regular season long and then not winning national titles. So, so. who's a modern college basketball power? Villanova. Yeah. All right. They won, not a blue blood? They won, no, definitely not. They won two national yeah. championships in three years, and they, they've got three national championships overall with Rolly Massimino's 1985 Cinderella story win. And... They are starting to recruit at a high level. They're always at the top of their conference championship. Again, got a couple Final Fours, deep NCAA tournament runs. Villanova is a modern college basketball power, but not a blue blood. What about Michigan State? No, not a blue blood. Really? I don't hmm. close. Ah, I don't. That would I mean, be. They've dominated the Big Ten. I know. I know. I would. Enter, I would entertain a Michigan State blue blood debate. And if you want to throw Indiana out of the blue blood c- club, Michigan State absolutely is top nominee to take their place you see that's right i feel like michigan state has taken over indiana's role as the big 10 blue blood in basketball yeah i would accept that for sure you're right of course illinois has come to take that crown so it doesn't <laughs> really matter yeah we're not going to talk about that 20 point uh blown lead or the 20 point comeback that fell short yeah with ao to like spraining the hell out of his ankle on the final play it's the worst the worst could have been a lot worse that's true based on what it looked like yeah no structural damage we're happy about that and this has been your ncaa tournament preview minute on the cover three check out the ion college basketball pod with matt norlander and gary Parrish. (laughs) uh i like that any other final thought on blue blood nope okay and uh while we uh while we get the oompa loompas in line uh comment from oh yeah awesome i'm so glad from the so mailbag, uh, the comment was, love the book club. And this is a recommendation. Now, remember, if you want to go and give us a, a five-star review and have a question for the mailbag, that's always welcome. And we do throw them in and we do answer them on these mailbag podcasts. But if you also want to offer a recommendation for the book club, for uh, us or for other listeners, i I'm, I'm fine to bring those to the table too. I have not read this book, so I cannot speak on it, but... Uh, Listener says, love the book club. First thought was Arnold Palmer's A Life Well Played. So um, 
I will. I'll have to add that to my reading list. Arnold Palmer's going, Life Well Played. It's going on my list. Five star review. Five star review. We'll uh, we'll get it. Um, all right. Let's uh, let's get dun 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 dun. One two three. The, the audio, the what do you call it? Audio mastering or something? And like get that cleaned up a little bit. I'm gonna see if I can get the the Yale Whiffin Poofs <laughs> to record a Cover Three Book Club uh, uh, theme for us. If, that that's if you can do it, you should. It's, it's, yeah. This I am a I am a prestigious alumnus of the school, and I need you to do me a favor. <laughs> All right, Tom, you're uh, you're up. Uh, okay, for my very first foray into the Cover 3 Book Club, I am covering the book Fooled by Randomness by Nassim Nicholas Taleb. I chose this book because, you know, on this podcast, we do a lot of gambling talk during the season. And this was a book that I found, even though it's not about that, was very useful for me in gambling. What it is, is it's a look at how much of our lives and not, I mean the world in general in our lives is really just random luck, just things that are completely out of our control that we have no say in that happen. And then we then spend our time trying to figure out why it happened. And because we have to have a meaning behind everything for what happened. Like we have to, in our brains, the way we work, we are wired to figure out why something happened and we cannot accept that it was just something that happened for no real reason and it just has consequences. So it looks at it mostly through the stock market, which is where the author was, you know, he made his living before he became an author and how the stock market is mostly luck. There's some, in, you know, there's some intuition, there's some experience, there's some skill behind it, but a lot of it is luck. And I guess the best way to describe it would be here, let me look up a quick the book in three sentences. Randomness, chance, and luck influence our lives and our work more than we realize. Because of hindsight bias and survivorship bias in particular, we tend to forget the many who fail, remember the few who succeed, and then create reasons and patterns for their success, even though it was largely random. Mild success can be explainable by skills and hard work, but wild success is usually attributable to variance in luck. And I read this book, found it very interesting, and I used what I took away from it in trying to figure out, you know, when I make a pick or when I'm gambling or with anything, where did I go wrong? In a way, I guess the one way to best describe it is trying to separate the signal from noise. And just some notes I got here. Uh, things that happen with little help. These are quotes from the book. Things that happen with little help from luck are more resistant to randomness. Mild success can be explainable by skills and labor. Wild success is attributable to variance. Uh, let's see. Every man believes that he is quite different from every other man when reality is we're mostly all the same. In a way, I, another way to put it too with gambling, you know, if you've found like a system that works and it's worked for the past few seasons and there's maybe like, you know, 500 games, a sample size. You can't really rely on that no matter how good it is. But if you find a success, a system that's 
over thousands upon thousands upon thousands of games that has been successful, then there's actually something to it. The luck has been taken out of that. That's just a result in the way things work. So like when like new ideas or cutting edge ideas might be interesting or cutting edge research might be interesting and give us something to look at first going forward, you really can't trust it. You know, like, and think about like new diets and that kind of stuff, like diet fads might work right away. And how many times have you seen or known somebody that goes on a, the new diet fad and it works. And then six months later, they're right back to where they were because right. there's no, there's, there's no sample that proves that it works. So, oh, and another key thing, I'm sorry, I'm kind of rambling on here. Science is speculatory and we too often think of science as fact and as proof. But the reality is that science is simply coming up with ideas or f trying to figure things out. But while they're quote unquote proven, any one random event can show that it was unproven. Like think of how many things throughout the history of science that we thought were real and then found out we were wrong about. Well, it's kind of like betting uh, service Academy unders. Mm -hmm. And when one, and when one goes over, you can't throw your whole game plan out the window. Exactly. Got to get back to the, to the formula. Exactly. So this is, it's a very good book. Um, I recommend reading it. It's, it can be somewhat scary and it could be somewhat hard for, I, 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 I expect a lot of people if they read this book would be like, this is a bunch of crap. That's not true because that's just the way our brains are wired. And it's hard for us to accept the fact that so much that happens in our lives are random. But it also, one of the things too, that I think is important to keep, take note of from the book is that while logic is a great thing the fact is that our emotions even though they're irrational are very useful in helping us to decide things so you can't just be like a robot when it comes to trying to make a decision if you have emotions listen to the emotions take them into account when making any decision because more often than not our gut instinct or our initial emotional reaction is a byproduct of thousands upon thousands of years of evolution and what has happened in our body telling us, nope, bad idea. Nope, good idea. Even without a lot of thought behind it, like that first initial reaction can sometimes be the right one instead of trying to waste time trying to figure things out. So, so it, enjoy randomness when it's harmless and use stoicism when it's harmful. Isn't, um, have you read, have you read Blink by Malcolm Gladwell? I read part of it. I did not finish it. I did not like Blink. No, I didn't either. Because Blink, it was like it was all about sort of how these snap judgments were like proven to be correct and like trust your your first instinct. And I, I wanted to like yell at the book or like, well, what if it, like what about the times when your snap judgments were wrong? Right, <laughs> like that happens too. And so this uh, this book sounds like it's a little bit more of the opposite of Blink in terms of like yes, like there's, I mean this like. Don't don't uh, don't try to glean too much from the outliers, but um, but more about sort of look, stick with the, the 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 system that works. Stick with the proven as opposed to getting seduced by the um, the random. I guess. Yeah, and another couple key tenets from it too. Here's a quote: Remember that nobody accepts randomness in their own success, only their failure. Yeah. Like, so because of something you did when it goes wrong <laughs> right. it was because well no that's because the wind picked up and blew the ball five yards to the left and then there's another thing he writes about called the social treadmill effect which is you know people thinking you know money can make you happier but it's proven money doesn't make you happy it's just 
What has been proven, what there's data to support is having more money than you had before makes you happy, but only for so long. Like he uses the example of if you're poor and you start making money, you move to a better neighborhood and suddenly you're surrounded by, you're surrounded with people who are just as successful or more successful as you are. And even though you're richer than you were, you start to feel poor again. Yeah. Because you're surrounded by it. You go down to uh, South Beach in Miami, buy yourself a boat, look across the water, somebody with a bigger boat. Like, yeah, like if you're a model in, you know, the Midwest and you move to L.A. to become, a you know, to continue your modeling career, <laughs> suddenly you find out, oh, wait, I might have been really good looking in, you know, the middle of, I don't know, Kansas. But in L.A., I'm suddenly like a six. <laughs> One of the things that uh, I like from your um, from from sort of your explanation of fooled by randomness uh is is like the the marginal sick what'd you say marginal success can be skills and labor Mm -hmm. yeah it's like all right so if if you can control the marginal success then just keep delivering on that and then hopefully then when when the luck hits it'll be in your favor yeah and it also it's it talks about black swan events which are just like it's based off of the idea that if you look at a, a thing of swans they're all white but like there's one in a million swans are black and it's just something that is completely random as to which swan is suddenly born, you know, with black feathers instead of white feathers. And it talks about these black swan events, how these things have happened throughout the history of time. And since they are so unique, we have a tendency to see them as a sign of something bigger happening when really it was just a completely random act that we put way too much, you know, weight in or whatever you want to use. So it's, it's the first book in a series. And there's another book that goes on called black Swan, which is, you know, that it goes further in that direction, but no fooled by randomness is a very good book for you to read no matter what you're really into, but it just helps you kind of maybe accept some things that, you might not be willing to accept or at least recognize them because that's the other thing too. He writes about how we all know these things are true. It's just, we still don't do it. Like we could sit down and recognize, okay, well that was just pretty lucky, but we, we, we really have a hard time convincing ourselves of that over the long run. What was some of the, when he said it might scare you, what, what would be the scary parts? Just, um, just like, that you're not in control of it, everything. Yeah. I mean, in a way, I guess I don't know how to get, but there's a reason religion is so huge among human beings <laughs> because we want to feel like there is some sort of reasoning or order behind everything. And that this kind of shows that, well, maybe there is maybe that it doesn't rule out the fact that, you know, maybe there is a God or whatever. It's just so much of what happens in our daily lives and in the world and just everywhere is completely random. Like, I mean, think about it. If some crazy dudes in Eastern Europe didn't shoot the Archduke Ferdinand, you know, Franz Ferdinand in 1913 or whatever year that was, there's not a World War One. It's just random events by a couple people completely changed the way that the world worked and has worked since. So it's just, yeah, it's it's. It's existentially, it can be a little scary. Tom, I'm going to drive the podcast towards a destiny versus free will debate. <laughs> I would like to make clear, too, my <laughs> next book will probably be something a little lighter than this. <laughs> I, I like it. No, I love it. I, I, I like, I like those, sort of, those sort of themes. I'm into it. Fooled by Randomness, The Hidden Role of Chance in Life and in the Markets by Nassim Nicholas Tlaib. 
So, Tom, thank you very much for your book club offering. You can follow him on Twitter at Tom Fernelli. You can follow him on Twitter at Barton Simmons. You can follow me at Chip underscore Patterson. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you. What's normal? The Paramount Plus original series, Evil Returns. We've already hunted werewolves, demons, and now what? A baby antichrist? <laughs> Prepare yourself. You will not beat us. For the end. I have visions of hell. Make it stop, make it shut up. You're not gonna survive this. Evil, the final season. Streaming May 23rd, only on Paramount Plus.